You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Morning, family. How you doing? Good. Glad you're here. We are in the last week of the Advent series. Are you excited? For why not be? Even if you're not, we're here. Um, we have a long way to go before the sun sets today. And I'm going to try to do it in as concise a way as possible, but we are going to build on this question that we've been wrestling with. Advent is this season of arrival. Advent, Advent means arrival, and it's the telling of the story of the arrival of the Christ child. It's, it's this story of Jesus, God becoming man, taking on flesh and dwelling amongst us. And we've been wrestling with the question in this series, do you really want to be used by God? Because we all love the idea of being used by God. But the problem is the road that many of the people of, of the Bible had to walk in order to get there was really difficult. And so we've been wrestling in this particular series with this issue of rejection. Zechariah and Elizabeth become the parents of John the Baptist, but they have to face this huge cultural rejection to get there. And Mary and Joseph become the parents of Jesus himself, but they have to face this huge family rejection to get there. And the shepherds and this social rejection, um, so we've been building on all this rejection, 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 but when God shows up, and his perspective is introduced into the story, everything changes. And I know that for some of us sitting in the middle of our messes, we can go, well, that's a really nice idea, but how can you prove that, that God's perspective was different? Jesus, like Jesus showing up is the proof that God's perspective is different. And so what I wanna do today with our Christ candle in the Advent story is I wanna wrestle with a text that is probably one of the most exciting pieces of scripture in the entire Bible. It's the genealogy of Matthew chapter one. Now what I know is that for us as Westerners, if we were to say, what are the hardest places in the Bible for you to read? Leviticus and genealogies right? That we just did, there's just a list. Like this guy had this guy, had this guy, had this guy, had this guy. Let's move on to the story. Where's the, your, where's the Ehud sticking a king with a, and losing his knife and his fat? Like, let's, let's read that story. That story's rad. Like, let's get to the story. But what's interesting is if you ask a Jew, what is their favorite parts of the Bible to read? Leviticus and the genealogies. Why? Well, I want to talk about genealogies as a concept, as an idea, and how the Jews see the genealogies. And then I want us to move into Matthew's genealogy because he opens the Christmas story, his version of the advent of the Christ child, with a huge genealogy that is bigger than just a list of names. And so we want to, we want to get into this. I want to give you three lessons about genealogies, just general things about genealogies that you need to know that make them important to the Jews, and then we'll introduce the text. So here's number one. This is the story that I belong to. And this is important because this is the retelling of the family story. Now, you guys are getting together with your families over Christmas, right, more or less. Um, here's what I know. Every time my family gets together, they're always 
telling stories, and they're always the same stories, and they're all stories that make someone else in the family look bad. So they're, you know, they're the, they're the stories that, remember that time when you did that really dumb thing? Yeah, it was, you, were, you look dumb. Like, the, those are the kind of, but we tell those stories every single time. We were on the way to church today. We were telling the story of my nephew Adam jumping up and down in the window in his underwear when we pull up to their house. Like, we are telling those stories, and he wasn't even there to defend himself. And so that made us feel like we always tell the same stories as a family. Why? Because those stories are the glue that anchor us together as a family. The genealogy is the retelling of the story that I belong to. And that matters because it gives us such a sense of identity that we can't get any other way. It reminds us of the stories of what God's done already so that we can build our life upon the truths of what God's already done. Number two, number two thing that we need to know, I was there. It wasn't them, it was me. And one of the fascinating things, if you go to Israel with me sometime, what you'll notice, and everybody that goes with me notices this, and it's really interesting, the Israeli guide that we use, they, they, it doesn't matter which one we use, they all do it the same way. Whether they're telling the story of like, the Six-Day War, which is a more modern piece of Israel history, or they're telling the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, or they're telling some story somewhere in the middle. It's always we. We were there. We did this. It's kind of like college football fans, right? Like, we played you guys, right? You remember that kind of, you guys know, like, no, we didn't. We sat in a chair eating chips and yelling at the television screen. That's what we did. But somehow there's this we play or you guys beat us. And there's this, why? Because it connects us to the story. And so when they talk about, when the Jews talk about the crossing of the Red Sea, we crossed, God parted the waters for us. We prefer history as Westerners. Jews prefer memory. And that sounds subtle, but it's actually radically different. The statement for us is what happened there. The statement for them is what happened to us there. Because it's my story. And brothers and sisters, family, if you have chosen to become a part of the story that the Bible's trying to tell in the world, it's your story too. I was there. I am part of the story, and that matters. And so the genealogy connects me to that story. Now, the third thing that we need to know about the genealogy is that the bloodline is unblemished. The the genealogy is trying to prove that the bloodline is unblemished. So when you tell a genealogy, and this is true in the Bible, sometimes they skip a generation. You know why? Because the message that they're trying to communicate with the genealogy doesn't look good if that name's in it. Like that guy was a dirty so-and-so or this guy wasn't, this person wasn't part of the story that we're trying to tell in the world and so we're gonna leave him out. And so we have a granddad and a grandson, not dad, father, son. Like it's not the same. They get left out sometimes because they're not telling the same story. This is really critical and the best way to get your head around this, and this isn't a great example, but you gotta hang with me, is like when you think about buying a champion dog, a hunting dog, for example, like what is the most important thing? It's bloodline. What's its pedigree? Why? Because the pedigree proves that he has the right to be worthy of the money that you're going to spend on this puppy that's going to poop on your house. 
right? The, it, it proves the look at the look at the bloodline. Look at it. In fact, I have a friend that breeds dogs. He goes to the Moscow campus, and he breeds champion hunting dogs. And here's what he told me. He told me that if the males, if the males, not the females only, but if he has a male dog that jumps a fence and breeds another kind of dog without everything going as it, like being not the right breed, not the right, not even, it could be the same breed, but not the right registered thing, right? Not a high enough pedigree. He could get kicked out of the breeding program. Like he could lose his breeding license. Like the bloodline is that serious. And that is exactly how the Jews treat genealogy. It is proof that not only are we God's children, but we're part of God's story. So when you read a genealogy in the Bible, the names that are used and the stories that are told help us to be able to show the world that we deserve to be a part of this story because our bloodline attaches us to it. Does that make sense? It's with that in mind that I want to enter into Matthew chapter 1. Let's begin. The, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Yeah, the son of Abraham. If you could ever pick two amazing characters to anchor your story to as Messiah. Number one, prophesied that Messiah was going to be called the son of David. But number two, Abraham's the father of the people. And so these are the two names that we want to connect Jesus to. Let's see how we do. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, okay, stop for a second. Let's stop for a second here, and let's look at what's going on. Number one, you never, ever, ever put a woman's name in a genealogy. Not because, not even really because they're less, uh, in this culture, but because it is almost impossible to trace your bloodline through the female side. This is why um, for the, in order to be a Jew in the Bible, you have to trace it through the father's side. Now, in modern Israel, there's this interesting law that anybody who has any Jewish descent can come and is automatically considered a resident of Israel. Um, and, but they switched it so that you can trace it on the, on the matriarchal side. Well, why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because females change their names. And so trying to figure out throughout history how you actually connect to the family line is really, really difficult on the mom's side. It's almost impossible. And so they did it to make it really easy for people to go, I have Jewish blood. Okay, fine, come in, you're in, right? You never put a woman in a genealogy because they don't keep their names, this is the way the world worked in. So if Matthew is going to stick a name in there that is like a, wait, what a minute? It's, it, it's a female name, first of all. Number two, the story that we're being anchored to here. Not awesome. The story's found in Genesis 38. If you're, if you're familiar with the biblical narrative, you understand it. If you're new to the biblical story, let me give you just a quick recap of the story. And there's a lot going on in the story that I'm going to keep up. Uh, skip over, but Judah marries a Canaanite woman, and he has three sons. Judah picks Tamar to marry his oldest son, and his oldest son dies without having given, having had any children. Now, in this world, the, the culture was that if your son dies without having any children, then the wife gets married to the next son in line, and he has 
takes her as a wife and has children with her, and then the first male child that she has is not hers, or not his, it's his older brother's. Did I explain that okay? Did, did you follow that? The, the reason is because it's about carrying on his older brother's family line. You with me? Well, here's what happened. The son dies. Tamar becomes the, the wife of the next son in line, and he... This is going to get PG-13 for a minute. You're going to have to hang out with me because there's, again, no moral giants in this story. He, when they're in the act of being husband and wife, never, he pulls out. And it says, the Bible says that he spills his semen on the ground. Now this for years has been the Catholic Church's case for birth control. No birth control. God doesn't like birth control because what happens is God kills him. But I would suggest that there's another reason why God kills him. This second son of Judah is using her. He's getting what he wants, but she's not getting what she wants. You understand what I'm saying? She's not getting a child. He's just using her for sex. And God doesn't like it. This is how God feels when people use other people. Are you with me? Judah then says, so, he, so the oldest son dies, the next one in line dies, and then Judah says, my youngest son is too young to marry her, by which she meant she's cursed. So she goes back home to live with her father in shame and disgrace in a culture that is called an honor-shame culture. That she's shamed, and so she's bringing whole shame on her whole family. Now Judah one day, and again, I'm skipping a bunch, he's out herding sheep out in a field near her town. And he decides he wants a little time and tenderness. Um, but his, his wife's not there. And so he decides to hire a prostitute, which again, no moral giants in this story, which raises the question, why in the world, why in the world would Matthew ever put her name in the genealogy? She disguises herself as a temple prostitute, goes out to meet him, and they start to haggle over the price of their union. They agree that the price is a goat, but he doesn't have a goat with him. And because that's what you do, it's a goat. You're worth a goat to me. And so he gives her a staff and a belt as collateral that he'll come back and bring her the goat and he'll take that stuff back. Well, Tamar gets pregnant. Now, Judah doesn't know that it's Tamar which again, raises a whole nother set of questions, but that's another sermon for another day. Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law, who's technically still under the protection of his patriarchal rule, is pregnant. And Judah says, burn her. He doesn't know it's his. He says, burn her. She's being a floosy. Not to mention what he's doing, but that's another sermon for another day. So they bring Tamar out and Judah says, whose child is it? And she says, I don't know but he gave me this belt and staff. <laughs> brilliant. It's brilliant. Judah looks at her and goes, she is more righteous than I am, which is the gospel truth in this story. Again, no moral giants in the story. He winds up marrying her himself. But no Tamar no Jesus. Like, if you were trying to prove that the messianic bloodline is pure, why in the world would you stick that in there? Right? But let's read on. Let's see how it goes. 
Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Naashan. Naashan, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, wait a minute. Another woman stuck in there. Who is she? She's a prostitute. Like, for real. She wasn't even pretending to be one. She actually was one. She's the one that hid the spies when they went in to scope out Jericho. She is a hooker. And somehow found her way into the lineage of Messiah. Oh, but it gets better. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And if you ever want to pick somebody to blow up a genealogy, Ruth is a Moabitess. There are two groups of people that God, God explicitly says, hey, don't intermarry with the pagan nations around you because they're going to corrupt you. But specifically, the Ammonites and the Moabites don't. If you intermarry with them, the children that you have will not be allowed to worship in the temple for 10 generations. Now, why is God picking on them? Well, if you remember the story, remember Sodom got destroyed and Lot and his family left and his wife turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back and they go up into the hills uh, in Wadi Zoar. Come, come with me to Israel, we'll walk it. And his daughters say, there's nobody left in the whole world. So as far as they know, there is nobody left in the whole world. So they're like, here's what, here's what we do. We get dad drunk and sleep with him so that we can get pregnant. Again, no moral giants in this one. I, I'm convinced that if the Bible was ever made into a movie, Christians couldn't make it. Like this, this every word God inspired and it's nasty business. I think our halos are wound a little too tight sometimes but I digress. So his oldest daughter gets him drunk, gets pregnant, and then his youngest daughter gets Lot drunk and gets, sleeps with him and gets pregnant. His oldest daughter has a son named Ammon, and his youngest daughter has a son named Moab. And so the Ammonites and the Moabites are explicitly by God called out as, like the whole way that this thing began was messy, it was bad. Don't even get mixed up with that. If you do, your children will be called mumsers. Which the nearest English equivalent to that is the word bastard. And I, and I know that that word has some really nasty connotation in the English language. Not all the baggage to it, but the really, like the illegitimate, they're just illegitimate children on every level. And they're not even allowed to worship in the temple for 10 generations which raises a really interesting question because let's check out Ruth's grandson. Obed was the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of King David. David himself shouldn't have been allowed to be able to worship God at all. But at least finally we're at King David, right? At least now it cleans up. Now, this is son of, this is David. This is, David's a big deal, right? Well, let's read on. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So the murderer adulterous guy, that's the one we want to build our life after. Don't forget that. Right, this, this, and, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, who murdered his father. 
Like it just gets worse and worse and worse. If you are going to try to prove the purity of the bloodline, this is the worst genealogy in history. Why does Matthew begin his story of the advent of the Christ child here? Let's think about it for a second. Who is Matthew? What does he do for a living? He's a tax collector. And Matthew is a Jew writing a Jewish gospel to prove a Jewish Messiah to Jewish people. He, in a very Jewish way, starts with a genealogy to capture them, but also to tell a story. Let me tell you how bad Jewish tax collectors were perceived, in, especially in the Galilee in the first century. In the Gospel of Luke, one of the things that we see is that as Jesus starts his ministry, he is kind of expanding their understanding one story at a time, one event at a time. Jesus is trying to open their eyes up to how big the mission of God really is. How big is God's love for the world? How vast is it that, how far will God go to redeem the world? Who does he love? Who does he not love? Now Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee. He picks Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip, fishermen. Now, they're nothing special, but they're Jewish. The next story, Jesus goes to the other side of the lake and chooses a demoniac, a pagan Gentile with a thousand demons in him. You know what the next story is? Jesus chooses a tax collector. Do you know what Luke's saying? Like, yeah, he's for the down and outers. The, those boys, those fishermen that went with him across the lake would take a thousand demoniacs before they would ever take one tax collector. That's Matthew. And the reason that this genealogy matters so much to him is because what Matthew is trying to prove is that the story of the lineage of Messiah was never pretty. It was never perfect. It was never moral. It was a bunch of ridiculous mistakes after mistakes after mistakes. And in the great victories and in the worst of the defeats, God was in them all. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, a deceiver, a prostitute, and a Moabitess. God was just as present there as he was in all the great moments of victory. No Tamar, no Jesus. And that matters to a guy like Matthew. And I think one of the things that the Christmas story teaches us in all of this rejection, rejection, rejection that we've been working through is that once we get God's perspective on a situation, it often isn't what we thought it was going to be. I think one of the things that Matthew would teach us through his genealogy is that God loves us far more than we could ever comprehend. And he is 100% for you. And in those moments in your life, 
those seasons in your life, and for some of us, even long seasons in our life, where we're like, I don't feel God. I don't see him. I don't understand. Where is he? That those are the places where God maybe is most present. And it's with that in mind that we're going to move towards the Lord's table. So we're going to do a couple of things right now. Number one is we're going to pass some buckets. They're going to come from the middle and go to the outside. It's going to be for those cards that Thad asked you to fill out a little bit ago. Um, It's going to be for those cards. But the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. So if you're new with us, we have what's called an open table. And what that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. If you would like to celebrate Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection with us, there is a seat at the table for you. And so we want to invite you to that. Now, while they're passing that out, what I want to do is I want to work through a few implications. Now, implications means these are things that, as the teaching team worked through this sermon, these are things that stuck out to us that were particularly important. Um, there's probably lots of other places in your life where you would go, but that has a great application over here or a great, I think about when you say that, it makes me think about this place where my, that's all valid and good and you should do that, absolutely. These are just a few things that we thought stuck out to us as we began to work through it. So let's look at implication number one. God is no less present in our disastrous chapters than he is in our victories. And for some of us, Like, we don't want God in parts of our story, right? We don't want God to see parts of, you know, the parts of the story that when, even when you're together with your family, maybe you don't tell that part of the story because it's dark or it's hard or you don't want people to know. Even in those places, God is there. And the invitation of Matthew's advent is maybe God is most there. Kind of reminds me of the, um, remember the poem, The Footprints poem? You guys remember that? Thank you. The Footprints poem, you know, there's two sets of footprints walking on a beach. And then there was one, and where were you, God? And that's where I carried you, right? My wife, between services, she's like, here's what you you should add is, and sometimes God grabbed you by the ankle and there's two lines where your butt dragged in the sand and he was dragging you like, let's go. Uh, it's true. It's true sometimes. Uh, so I, and I'm not, I'm not making fun of people who have that poem still on your wall at home, but you should go home and take it down. It's, not, it's 2017 now. I don't know if you know that's not 1981. Um, the Imperials aren't a group anymore. But it's true. It's very similar to that. Even in those most difficult, disastrous circumstances, God is maybe most present there. Let's look at another implication. The Christ is for everyone, and there is no one. If you're taking notes, you should circle that on your implications. Circle it, underline it, highlight it, blow it up, make it big. There is no one who is not invited to be a part of this messianic family line. You can't mess up bad enough. You can't blow it bad enough to be uninvited. You can't. Like, I think the best gift that the church can give the world is to help them see a God who loves them far beyond what they could ever think. So many of us, we sit there like we don't, like we were raised with, either we owned a belief on ourselves or somebody gave it to us or whatever. I don't know how it 
plays out in your story, but we're raised with this belief that we're not enough. I need to be more. I need to be different. I need to be whatever. And sometimes it's simple things like I need to be skinnier or I need to be heavier or I need to be taller, shorter, smarter. I need to wear whatever. There's that surface level, but then there's the deeper things like my, my feelings don't matter and my thoughts are, I, I, I'm not smart enough. I, sh- I shouldn't say anything. Like, listen, there is nobody that God doesn't want to yell at you, I am for you. Now, for some of you in here, you're like, yeah, God's for me. I'm awesome. You know, well, God bless your self-confidence. But um, for the vast majority of us in here, I would suggest that many of us come to a place of just really feeling unworthy of God's love. And that's the hardest part. Like, what if I really accepted God's love? What would that mean? I can tell you a funny story. So I got a, you know how you get those Christmas cards on Facebook Messenger? Did you, have you seen the latest Babylon Bee article? I don't know if you guys read the Babylon Bee, but you should. It's satire. It's Christian satire, and it's hysterical. But their latest article was, somebody sent it to me on Messenger. Their latest article was, uh, Santa Claus becomes Calvinist, puts everybody on the naughty list. Because <laughs> they believe in total depravity. So nobody's good. Um, that's not God. Like the Calvinists are wrong there. They have a lot of good things going on in Calvinism, but that place, they're wrong. They're wrong. God doesn't see you as naughty. He sees you as full of potential. And you're worthy of his love. Next implication. The Christmas pronouncement that this child's name, God with us. By the way, this is an interesting thing. In Matthew, the angel comes to Joseph and says, you're going to have a child and you're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The interesting thing is they never call him Emmanuel. But the message of it is clear that God is in fact with us. In Jesus, God took on flesh and is with us. But I want you to understand that this is more than just a theological truth about incarnation. It's more than just a passing comfort. It's one of the greatest expressions of God's love and his acceptance. God taking on flesh and going to the lowest places isn't just theologically true. It's a giant statement about how God feels about you. And by the way, he began his life that way. And he laid down his life the same way. That's what communion represents this laying down of my life for your well-being. And one of the reasons why we take it every week as a church is because we never want to forget that in the end, if you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. But the harder you try to keep your life, the more that it will slip through your fingers. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, it's my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Christmas story, for this amazing story of how you redeem even the most difficult messes. That there is no body that is so broken, so hard, that you don't have a plan and a place for them. 
Lord, help us to not only live in that truth, but to live out that truth and how we communicate with other people. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.